from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Hello, and welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. We are back with episode 17, and today we are discussing talent, specifically company culture and employee retention. We know it's a tough market, especially given our current economic conditions. So we're excited to have Charlie Safro here with us. Charlie is the founder and president of CS Recruiting, an executive recruiting firm specializing in a variety of industries in supply chain management, logistics, transportation, and much more. She has over 14 years of direct recruiting experience in the logistics, transportation, and supply chain space, and currently leads a team of over 40 while managing the multi-million dollar organization she built from the ground up. Welcome to the show. Charlie, congratulations on being such a a successful entrepreneur and looking forward to talking today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about your career path and what got you to the podcast today. My career path is unique and unexpected, but I think most people would say that. I, I think a lot of people find themselves in the logistics and supply chain transportation industry by accident. I actually started in marketing and advertising right out of college. I spent about seven years on the agency side of the business doing client service. And then my story started really in this industry with my husband. He was a freight broker right out of college. A few years into that career, he had an idea to bring shippers and carriers together online, essentially a very early load board in the late 90s. When we had our first son, I went back to advertising, loved my company, but it was a grind and I didn't have time to be a mom. And so I asked my husband if I could come work for him. He and his brother had then started this load board company. They had about eight employees and he reluctantly let me join their team. And I started in kind of like a catch-all position and very quickly, maybe a month into my role, they brought on a partner that had a big vision for growth and hiring was a major initiative, but they didn't have anyone on their team who had capacity or knowledge to hire. So they looked at me and said, can you figure this out? Can you help us find some salespeople, some operations people, some customer service people? Um, and I really taught myself to recruit. So this was, LinkedIn was was out, but people were not using it even close to the way it's being used today. So very old school recruiting, Craigslist ads, you know, stapling up papers in libraries and coffee shops. But I really learned the industry and how to recruit through that experience. Fast forward, they sold their company uh, after I was there for four years. I stayed on with the new firm, working on a few recruiting projects as a freelancer. I was pregnant with my third son at that time, and I put myself on LinkedIn as a logistics and supply chain recruiter. And one thing led to another. I started getting inquiries from local companies, 3PLs, transportation providers. They saw that I was a supply chain expert and asked if I could help them recruit for their team and kind of took one project at a time. And then before I knew it, I... I had enough work to have a business and I had that, you know, turning point where it was like, I'm either going to do this and give it 110% or walk away before I fail. And so I made that commitment to really dive in and, and start a business. And that's where CS Recruiting was formed um, almost 12 years ago. So started as a one woman show and today managing a team of about 45. That's a pretty cool story. Thank you. 
So if you were to kind of look back and give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Oh, so much advice. You know, early in my working days, and this goes back to, you know, high school and college, I spent a lot of time in restaurants as a hostess, as a server, and I also worked at Nordstrom. And what I learned in both of those industries was the customer is always right. And so I really grew up with that mentality. And that was, you know, the advice or the the guidance my supervisors always gave me. And I think that set the foundation for me to be in a service industry, for me to overextend myself, to provide, you know, a good offering. But what I've really realized is it, it wasn't great advice. It was the advice I needed then. But now I've learned that if you have a team of people that you have hired and handpicked and trust very much, your team is always right. And we've had customers over the years that have not treated us respectfully. You guys know we're in a very male-dominated industry. We have a team of mostly women. So sometimes we get walked over and you know undermined. And I've really learned that my goal as a leader is to protect my team. Obviously, there's three sides to the story, and I have to look at it objectively. But um, I would say that advice, the customer's always right sometimes. And you need to really understand the other side of the equation. I'm not even sure where to go with this conversation because you're a parent, you're an entrepreneur, you've got a wealth of experience, but we'll try to go, Charlie, take us whatever direction you want to go with this conversation. I think our audience is going to be curious about all of that. Let's transition a little bit into your real expertise, which is people and culture and recruitment. So when you look at the marketplace today, particularly in supply chain, what are some of the trends that you're seeing, good, good, bad, or indifferent, and how are you as a leader and working with your clients, how are you addressing some of those major challenges that people are experiencing today? It's a a really interesting question that has probably, my answer has changed over the years, but the hiring market is just upside down right now. There's a lot of confusion. Are we going into a recession or not? Or, you know, should people um, be laying off right now or retaining teams to prepare for the future? But I would say what I've really learned as a recruiter in this industry is culture is number one and will be any company's competitive advantage. And culture is the people. So hard to describe a culture. It's more of a feeling. It's more of a a vibe. But we, for many years, worked with a lot of clients where they would call us for a search because they had a vacancy. Somebody resigned or they eliminated someone and they needed to backfill a position And what we've really seen shift over the years, and thanks to the pandemic and in a, you know, a weird silver lining way, we've seen companies start to really focus on retention and retaining their team so they can recruit new, strong talent. And now we're moving into this space where we are working with more companies that are hiring us to help them find candidates for growth. So not always a vacancy. It's either we're expanding our team, we're adding a service offering, more opportunistic. And those are the clients we love to work for. Not to say that there aren't, you know, replacements and vacancies and there's there's a story for all of those, but we love to work with companies that understand how important retention is and how much culture can drive not only your employee engagement and satisfaction, but your service. If you have a happy, engaged team, they are bound to be more productive. And I think it's just one big cycle that a lot of leaders don't understand. They just want to get them in the door 
and then think that they're going to stick around because they're being paid. But employees have options and you need to really respect them, appreciate them, listen to them, treat them as a human. And that is the really the, the message that we're trying to put out there, especially in this kind of rough and tough industry is everyone is a human behind that title and they deserve to be treated like that. After 12 years, are you in the, um, I would call it an enviable position, particularly as a private business where you can sort of pick and choose clients and you get to work with those that share the same values and culture that, that you do in your own organization? Yes. And it's taken us a while to get there. I mean, I think my team would agree that there were many situations in the past where I fought for the client and I looked at the client as our revenue generator and defended the client. And what's happened along the way is I've grown my team and I have assumed a leadership position. So now it's not just me giving advice because I observed a situation or I read an article or heard a podcast. It's me providing advice because I am living this and I am waking up every day trying to retain my 45 employees and listening to them and hearing the tough feedback. But I can now put myself in a position where I'm saying to our clients, I'm hiring too. I'm facing these same challenges. This is what you need to do because this is how we addressed it and flourish. So definitely, I think we all have like imposter syndrome, but I really reflect back and I'm like, I did a good job counseling based on learnings, education, knowledge, but now that I can really counsel on experience and I'm walking the walk, it just it's more authentic and it's more validating. What's been the key cultural messages that you've been uh, trying to convey, both to your employees and also to recruiters for that matter? Yeah, my, my biggest message is recruiting and retention are interconnected and you can't recruit new people unless you can retain your people. And so if I had $10,000 to spend on my current employees or a new employee, I need to take care of my current employees first. They are not only our culture champions, but they're our best advocates. They're our walking advertisements when we go out to hire. Um, and I think that's something that's really important. And there's a lot that goes into retention. It's it's not about all about money. It's not all about perks and benefits. It's having an appreciation and recognition process and budget. It's having a learning and development program where you can really invest in your team, not necessarily financially, but also just time and being able to listen and help them grow as individuals. It's really listening to their skills and asking every employee, what do you like to do and what do you want to do? And that is something we take a lot of pride in is we've we've promoted a lot of people internally because they came to us with an idea or they expressed a piece of the job that they really loved that turned into a whole department. So I think that a lot of companies are flat and it seems like there's a low ceiling, but there's always ways to develop people and challenge them. And it's not always a title or, you know, based on a hierarchy. So um, really looking at the people who are driving your business and just going above and beyond for them. Servant leadership, if you will. Yeah. So Charlie, research would broadly support exactly what you just said, but I, I often find with some of these things that it's easier said than done. So do you have advice for some of our podcast listeners, either how you've done it internally at your organization or how you've seen it done in other organizations? How do you go from the traditional pay and benefits and, and that, I, I would call it traditional methodology, to the 
rewards, recognition, empowerment, you know, all the, all the right things that we should be doing as organizations, but probably don't always do. Like, how do you, what's that journey like? How do you get there? You know, where do you invest all, you know, all the questions, the burning questions, people are like, oh, that sounds wonderful. And I want to do that, but, but how do I do it? Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to share some like actionable tactics. I do want to stress on that point that this did not happen overnight. It's always baby steps until the light bulb goes off and you realize this is an actual initiative or you need a process or a budget. But I've always been that leader that it's it's not always about money. I mean, when we came home March 2020 from the pandemic and we were working in an office um, for 12 years together. So now we're a fully virtual company, but I wanted to stay connected to my team. So you know, I, I started writing handwritten notes to every person. And sometimes I would put like a stick of gum in a card or a little inspirational quote that I printed out for the cost of a stamp and the impact that made on our employees' lives. Like they're reposting it on Instagram and LinkedIn and saying, look at this letter I just got from my boss, just reinforcing that I am here for a reason and that my job is important. Our L&D program is a really great example because for years I was caught in that mindset that it was a huge financial investment. We were looking at different programs like LinkedIn Learning, you know, five, $600 per head per year to have access to video content and, you know, courses that had quizzes and guided conversations. And we just didn't have the budget. And last year, we buckled down and we said, we don't need a lot of money to do this. We need conversations and transparency with our employees. And we started to have these employee development conversations with every team member, and then we would put together a custom curriculum. So in the past year, we took one of our recruiters, we promoted her to manage our L&D program, and everyone in our company now has a very customized curriculum that is made up of TED Talks and articles and podcasts. And maybe every so often we'll throw a book in there that, you know, costs $12, $15. But for the most part, we've been able to really create this L&D program that's enjoyable. Like we want to pay them to sit and watch a podcast on how to be a team player or how to be an inspiration. It's not all about skills that are specific to their jobs, you know, and, and really we're not making them learn Excel if they don't need to. So I think that was something that like, I would love other companies to just see how we did it and look at the processes, the templates. It wasn't easy and it was probably a good six months of planning before we launched it, but it's probably the best thing we're doing for our team today. So you're breaking it out in skills. I'll call it the hard skills versus the soft skills. Exactly. And you're spending a lot of energy on what I would call soft skill training, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's always oftentimes uh, where things get missed. I think somebody made a quote to me one time that people get hired for their hard skills. They get fired for their soft skills. It's very true because soft skills don't always come through on a resume. So you are being hired because your resume somehow made it through to the right person through some sort of applicant tracking system or AI technology. That's the hard skill keywords that are getting to that person. And the intangibles are more of that feeling. And I would say that is really how we have hired. Yes, certain skills are very helpful to get over an initial learning curve, but we just want good people on our team, people who are aligned with our values. And that's another really great tip for companies that if you don't have values, you need them. If you don't 
live your values, you need to redo them. We've done our values three times and now we shout them from the rooftops every day and we hire people and go back to our values and say, does this person seem like someone who's curious? One of our values is be curious. We want creative, resourceful people on our team that ask questions and want to learn. If you are curious, you will make a good recruiter. That is one of probably the best traits you could bring. So really just thinking about who do you want representing your company, whether you're a manager, a leader, even a corporate recruiter, this is this is now the face of your company. So soft skills are probably more important. And we have seen that start to shift, but I feel like now the market is turning again and employers can be picky again. And so now they're back to like, I want to hire someone from my competitor who has been in this position with, you know, who knows Excel, who knows how to use a TMS and, you know, can manage a P&L, but there's a lot more to a good hire. Charlie, sometimes when you're dealing with your clients, they're looking for such specific skills. I tend to like to call them, well, I think the term's purple squirrels. Yes, or unicorn. You know, I want a person who can speak Portuguese, fluent in Excel, and knows how to use Blue Yonder's demand, demand and forecasting. So how do you get them up a level to think about the, the soft skills and the fact that they're going to have to develop into those jobs? The reason most searches fail is because there's a lack of alignment with stakeholders. So exactly what you're talking about, if a CEO or a hiring manager gives us direction and says that, it, you know, usually what we get is I want a sales rep who has a book of business, no non-compete and can move freight on day one. And if that's what the leader believes is out there, we are going to fail because that person does not exist. So we really educate our recruiters to manage those expectations in that initial correspondence. We do provide a consulting service, which I would say has really helped us set the stage for our recruiting service. And through consulting, we can look at the market. We can show actual data, both proprietary and generalized data to say, you want that person that you described or there are four of them in the United States. So if you're not willing to look remote, where can we loosen up this search? Maybe they won't be bilingual and now there's 20 of them. So really looking at like hard data also as it relates to compensation, there's sometimes we'll go through a whole search where we're looking for a $100,000 candidate. We get the rock star in front of the final decision maker and they're like, I thought we were paying 70,000 and we're not going to hire this person. And it's mismanaged expectations, misalignment. So the only way you can do that is through data and then really use that data to tell the story as to why or why not it's possible. One of the things I, I have to get shameless plug here, and I hope you do this, is maybe the supply chain podcast will end up in your learning portfolio. The nice part is it's not going to cost you a dime. It's free. And I think we have some really great speakers. And of course, you can use yourself as a plug internally say, hey, the boss is in there. So that's pretty cool. And that's what we do exactly is we pull podcasts that are either, you know, a Brene Brown and inspirational Simon Sinek type conversation or very specific to our industry to help someone on our team really grasp, you know, the idea of reverse logistics or really understand a 4PL because we have a new client that they're managing. So definitely taking advantage of, of the great resources that are out there. Oh, wow. Brene Brown is an amazing speaker. I love listening to her talk. I agree. As you think about the, the environment today, right? Other challenges or obstacles that people are dealing with, you know, the great resignation, knowledge transfer as some people closer to Irvin, my age are, you know, moving on, you know, sunsetting their careers, differences in 
the work environment and differences in as the as the workforce becomes more diverse, which is a fantastic thing, but it creates other sets of challenges for people. The whole flexible work arrangements, you know, you have a virtual business, but not everybody does, right? I mean, I often say in supply chain, there's a whole lot of supply chain that you can't do from your from home, right? So how are you seeing some of these changes uh, or recommendations or suggestions for audience and how to adapt pitfalls to think about other, you know, other areas of concern? How, how, what kind of advice are you giving your clients in, in those different aspects? It is a really big topic in the talent world right now is the cross of generations in the workforce. And it's funny because maybe five years ago, I was on a panel talking about millennials and the panel kind of went in the direction of like how entitled they are. And in ways I couldn't help but agree because we were dealing with college grads who, you know, they thought they were privy to a director position with one year of experience and a six figure salary. And so you start to get this impression like, you know, where did that come from? Is it because they get awards even when they lose t-ball games? And um, what's happened is that the millennials were right. And like, That, I think, is the hardest thing for older, I don't want to say older, other generations to understand is that, you know, people want to be trusted and trust definitely comes from flexibility, but it doesn't always have to be remote work. I mean, we work in an industry where you need the boots on the ground, you need the drivers behind the wheels, and there are plenty of people who thrive in those environments. So having some flexibility, maybe it is a four-day work week in the office, maybe it's one day at home, maybe it's you know being able to choose your shift or rotate shifts or you know have some sort of buddy system so you're four days on and four days off. And I think that's the key is that people just want to be trusted. The best way to trust them is with flexibility and giving them some control of how they manage their time and their work schedule. And I think that that is what the generational divide is is really struggling to understand each other there. And it goes into, you know, in this panel a couple of years ago, we talked about how, you know, who do these millennials think they are that they can show up and, you know, rip jeans and flip-flops? Well, why shouldn't they? If they're working in an office and not meeting a client, let them be comfortable because the more they're trusted, the more comfortable they are, the more productive they're going to be. There's just no question there. And that's what we really try and, and teach our clients, but we teach it through example and, and leading by that example. I want to go back to something here, and maybe this is a little bit retrenching, but you mentioned that you offer sometimes your, I'll call it your curriculum development for your clients. Did I hear that right? In a way, we we offer a consulting service and it was born by sharing proprietary data. So, you know, we... We see a lot of different viewpoints. A client will come in and they will say, this is my budget for a pricing analyst. And then we'll talk to 10 pricing analysts and understand the candidate expectations. So maybe the client said the budget was 50K. The candidates are all asking for more than 60. We place the position and it closes at 72. That's where we have a lot of great data to say, like, this is actually happening out there and you need to stay competitive and um, know what your your competitors are doing and what the candidates are asking for and what they're getting. But to your point, Irv, we have also started to really consult through workshops, through project work where we're helping our clients. I think the best example is helping our clients through the interview process. And we've learned that 
by doing it ourselves. So um, this year alone, we hired 17 new people for our you know small but mighty firm. And we have a very good process from the minute we engage a candidate to the minute we extend them an offer. It's all about transparency. It's all about a consistent rotation of the people and the faces they meet along the way, consistent questions so the team can evaluate objectively. And that's something that a lot of our clients, people don't know how to interview. It's like you make it up to a manager, all of a sudden you're a manager one day and now you need to hire someone. And it's very rare that someone is taught how to conduct an interview from a decision maker standpoint. So that's something we can help our clients through is like really understand their business, really understand the position and help them create an internal process for interviewing and managing their hiring strategy. Same thing with like a talent brand. A lot of companies have a budget for marketing so they can get new business, Um, but not a lot of companies have a budget for marketing to get new people. And then if you don't control that, you're just basing your whole business and your recruiting success on the perception. So if somebody reads one glass door review, they don't want to work for you. But if you invest in your sharing anecdotes and testimonials and real case studies of your employees and faces on the screen and showing you know, diversity in the workforce, that's what people are attracted to. So helping our clients form a talent brand. And again, it's not something that always needs a lot of money. It, you're doing it. Just put it out there and expose your best attributes. And so yeah, a lot of what What we consult on, I would say, is the way we got into it is just leveraging our data and our recruiting and market knowledge. But where it's morphed into is, you know, consulting even outside the industry on just how to build a brand and a culture and a team of loyal employees. So that's exciting for us to be able to kind of share our knowledge because, again, like we stumbled into it and we figured it out. It sounds like it's uh, you built some great long-term relationships with your clients through doing this too. Absolutely. Good for your retention. Yeah. Thank you. And our employees. I mean, our, our first and second hires are still on my team today. They're both leaders with me and they've been with the company over 10 years. So we're, we're walking the walk. We're not just saying retention is important. You could ask them, you know, if there's been bumps along the way, but ask them what keeps them and um, really understand the initiatives that have worked and the initiatives that have failed because there have been failures along the way too. I got a couple of questions uh, for you, Charlie, as you think about the uniqueness of the supply chain industry. Pre-pandemic, I don't think anybody really knew what we did. You know, um, you mentioned earlier about the benefits of COVID. I call that COVID lemonade, right? But, you know, now we're all, one one of our board members the other day said COVID is sexy now. I don't know if it's sexy, but we're all rock stars, right? Oh, yeah. And, uh, if you look at some statistics, for example, like here at Penn State, our increase in our student population in the supply chain ma- major went up over the last year by the single largest percentage ever in its history, which is fantastic, right? And I still see it, maybe I'm misguided here, you're on the front lines. I still see it as a seller's market, meaning there are more jobs than there are participants in it, whether at undergraduate students or graduate students or alumni uh, professionals. Do you, uh, do you still see the market that way? Of course, economists are telling us that in 2023, we may have a, a shallow and short recession. We know what that means to the job market. So how do you see the job market today, specifically in the supply chain industry? What do you see for the next maybe 12 to 18 months and, and maybe the, the go forward strategy? And how can that inform organizations to think about their talent management strategy? 
Yeah, I do think that the media and the news and, you know, especially social media where there are a lot of loud voices has sent a lot of companies into panic. And these companies might not even be experiencing, you know, this this down business or down season. They're just reflecting on other companies and what they're doing. So the layoffs, I mean, I'm not undermining the layoffs. I, I feel terrible and extend my help to anyone we can, but they're they're consistent. They're with tech companies. They're a lot of, you know, last in, first out decisions where they overhired last year and now they're just getting rid of the highest paid performers or non-performers. But what you know, what we've really seen is that it is starting to shift. I read an article yesterday where I don't think, yes, I believe it's still a candidate's market. There are more people that, I'm sorry, there are more jobs than people. However, the jobs that are posted aren't always an accurate reflection of the market. So if you if you look today, Meta, Facebook probably has 500 jobs posted, but they just laid off, what, 11,000 people? Yeah. So are those jobs posted to catch, you know, is it bait to catch people for the future or are they replacing layoffs? There's it's probably a combination. You also look at companies that, and this happens to us all the time. Our client wants one salesperson, and they will hire them in Chicago or Atlanta or Charlotte. So we have seven jobs posted for one body, and so there is some misinterpretation in terms of how many jobs are actually out there. And I think that it's exaggerated in a lot of situations. But I'll tell you, our industry has a lot of niche talents and a need for people that bring different experience, different points of view. So even though the candidates are losing a little control, I'm sorry, the companies are losing a little control, there is still a need to recruit and to be proactive with your recruiting. And I also think that a lot of these companies that are laying off people, that person could add a lot of value, even if the market is down and the seasonal trends are fluctuating. There's always rainy day work. There's always projects to prep them for the future. And that's the recruiting message is you should still always be building a bench because when the day comes that you need to hire, if you have kept these conversations going, even when you're not hiring, you're going to get the right person the first time around much quicker. But it's it's very interesting right now. I mean, for a long time, these candidates were in control. People are jumping the gun and saying, now the companies are in control, but I wouldn't say we're there yet. That might be what's coming. But either way, there are niche positions and there are lots of opportunities. So um, I think both both sides of the desk, you know, have to just look at the pros and cons of where they were and where they are and, and leverage the right information. So Charlie, this has been a really interesting and thoughtful conversation. Loved hearing about your your business and your background. We There was some offline conversation about you as a parent and trying to be a parent and an entrepreneur and a leader. Love to have a different conversation about that sometime. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's interesting. And we do a, a women in supply chain series. So maybe we can entice you to come back for that and talk about talk about your your role specifically as it relates to that. Um, anything that we didn't ask you today that you would like to provide as a closing thought to our audience to say, don't forget about this, don't miss this, don't don't fall into this trap. Any any final closing thoughts of wisdom from you in your role and what you see in the marketplace? I just wanna 
you know, commend you for what you're doing, because when you tell me that the supply chain enrollment is going up, like that is music to my ears. When I, when I went to college, I don't think there was an option for supply chain as a major. Maybe there was, and I just wasn't interested at the time, but the majority of the people that are running our industry don't have that background and they fell into the industry in some roundabout way. My advice though, is to keep, sharing stories. And that's what you're doing, I'm assuming in your classrooms, but also through this podcast, people need to see people that they can relate to, to say, oh, I could go down that path because that person talks like I do, or they have the same values as I do, or they look like I do. Um, And I think that's where we're going to get more women in this industry is just sharing stories, talking about the ups and downs, not glamorizing it, but it's a really exciting industry and you're right that the pandemic created awareness. We all know, you know, how that box gets on our door and when it's not there the next day, then you start to really think about why it was delayed and what the supply chain talent workforce is doing to keep things moving. So it's all about just education, sharing stories, inspiring, and there's so many ways you can do that. But I I think that's, what's going to keep driving our industry forward and getting some some great talent to to lure them in either right out of college or maybe even mid-career. Well, that's so kind of you to say. On behalf of Penn State University, the Smeal College of Business and the Center for Supply Chain Research and the Department of Supply Chain Information Systems, we thank you so much for your valuable time today, for joining Irv and I in the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. We'll be sure to get this out there in the, in the public domain and feel free to share it with your audience. I think it's a fantastic story. And I think people are really going to want to hear what you have to say. I think it's very valuable information. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.